Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. And we've talked about how they are still kids. And, you know, maybe this is my bias as the mother of three boys. But if oppression doesn't make a teenage boy an adult, then privilege doesn't either. And they're still not making great decisions at that age. And that's why, to me, the responsibility really falls on the adult. That doesn't mean that they're not responsible for their actions. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't learn from this and suffer some consequences for their incredibly disrespectful behavior. But I still want us to remember that teenage boys are not adults. No matter the situation, no matter the color of their skin, they do not have the brain capacity to assess the consequences of their actions in like real adult ways until you're, I mean, it's like 27, your brain starts working really well. So, I mean, that's the only thing that kind of bugged me is I feel like it immediately became a, they were being treated as adults and they're not. They're, look at those kids. They're kids. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. On today's episode, we're talking about the Covington Catholic viral video from Washington, D.C. this weekend, where we were as well. It's a very popular weekend to be in Washington, D.C. Women senators running for president and the fact that our government is still shut down. In our main segment, we're going to talk about the power of House committees. And if you haven't yet, go back and listen to Friday's show because it is five things you need to know about House committees. So we did a little primer so that we could have this conversation. And then to close out, we'll be talking about what's on our mind outside politics. So Beth and I just got back from Washington, D.C. We were there on Friday for an event before the Women's March, which was also, I think, was was the Friday was when this Covington Catholic thing all went down, right? I think that's right, Sarah. It was the March for Life and the Indigenous Peoples March. Who scheduled those two on the same day? That's my first question, because that is not an awesome overlap. I'm just going to put it out there. On our way home from D.C., flying back to Cincinnati, I was looking around our plane and everybody had this sense, maybe it was just me, but it felt widespread (laughs) of like, which march were you there for? And there was kind of this weird sorting and people had different buttons and rolled up signs. And it was one of the most tense situations I've ever experienced. And that's just the slice of people who happened to be on my tiny commuter flight from DC to Cincinnati. So think about that kind of filling up a whole city. Mm-hmm. Well, you even had a run-in with somebody that was there for the pro-life march, and then you said you were basically there for the women's march and had an awkward moment in your hotel, right? We sure did. On our flight in, there were about 15 priests on the flight, and we were really confused about why there would be 15 priests on the flight. In first class, don't leave out that important detail. They were in first class, which was um, a little bit weird. And so Tracy, our executive producer, and I got to our hotel, and there were guys who had on shirts that were Cincinnati shirts. And so we were like, oh, hey, we're from Cincinnati, too. What what brings you here? And it was a high school boys trip to the March for Life. And they were like, what brings you here? And and my friend is like, we're here for the Women's March. (laughs) And and we all just kind of looked at each other awkwardly until the hotel clerk said something again and relieved us of the tension of the situation. Yeah, I was listening to NPR this morning. They're like, we're going to try to figure out what happened. And I answered out loud while walking my dog. America, that's what happened. It's it's not often that there's this sort of mixing, although I always find the Lincoln Memorial to be a spot where there is a diverse array of people and political interests in the country. And so especially when you have all these marches on the same weekend, I mean, I don't listen, the pro-life march and the women's march next to each other is a pretty intense scheduling situation to begin with. And so I don't think it's necessarily surprising that some sort of conflict happened when you mix people with such divergent life experiences and political beliefs and age groups. That's my main beef is I'm going to be real honest. As someone who lived in Washington, D.C. for several years and saw the influx of people for the pro-life march, it was almost always a very high percentage of high school students. And look, I was a high school student with very strong beliefs about things, but they're not the most nuanced group, right? And I I don't necessarily think it's an awesome thing to put them all together and say, not only are you right about this, life and death is on the line, God is on your side. Like high schoolers don't need that extra fuel to their fire. And listen, I say that because I know I was a very passionate member of my church youth group, and it led to all kinds of bad places. You know, high schoolers need to be encouraged to see the nuance in situations and to not feel like they're, you know, 
Soldiers on the Cause for Right. And so I think it's surprising that some sort of incident like this hasn't happened before at the Pro-Life March as someone who sort of watch them flow into the city every year because it is such a high percentage of high schoolers that are there on sort of a quote-unquote righteous mission that this sort of bubbling up into conflict was in a way inevitable. I definitely agree that I don't think marches should be field trips. I think if you're mm-hmm. going to engage in political activism as a student, and I, I think you sh- you can and and should under the right circumstances, it should be— I mean, we all praise Parkland. Come on. we gotta, That's we got to right. recognize— But I think you should be doing that with the guidance of loving adults who can walk Mm -hmm. you through a situation like that in a pretty individualized way. I was thinking about, you know, if Jane were at an all-girls school and they wanted to take a field trip to the Women's March, I would not be okay with that. I would not be okay with Jane going on a field trip to a march called, like, Stop Unwanted Pregnancies Because Condoms Are a Bummer. Like, whatever it is, (laughs) even if I wholeheartedly agreed with the spirit of the event— if Jane's going to go to something like that, I want it to be with me or her dad or someone like you, Sarah, who she knows and trusts and can talk her through a situation like this. That's exactly what happened to me. So after the shooting at my high school, they had the Million Mom March, which was not even primarily aimed at high school students. But my friend and I went with our mothers. There were four of us. Like it wasn't a big group of high, high schoolers aren't great in groups. I'm just going to I don't feel like that's a controversial statement. They're sort of not highly functioning prefrontal cortex is amplified in a group setting. And so I, you know, we went with these two adults and we were sort of, it was a very like individualized, this is something that happened in our life and we went and not a let's send a group of 20 high school students and make America great again hats and see what happens. Like, mm -mm. well, when you use your voice politically, weird things happen. No matter mm-hmm. what the context is for that, it just weird things happen and you can't always anticipate what those weird things are going to be. And and that's true whether it's in a march or here on a podcast or in a letter to the editor, whatever. You just have to be with someone who can help you through that. I've been thinking a lot about this because this is pretty much my community. Covington Catholic is about a 25 minute drive from my house and a, a drive that I make often, not to the school, but you know, past it and into that area. Here's what I want people to know about my community. It's an awesome place to live in a lot of ways. It's extremely philanthropic. Like by national standards, we are a very generous community. It is pretty religious. It is very business friendly. We have more jobs than we know what to do with here. It is close-knit. Multiple generations live in this area. People who are from here have plans on every holiday to do things with big extended families. So there are wonderful things about all of that. There are downsides to all of that, too. And one of the downsides, I think, is that we can be fairly myopic. And I think that that is what happened with these kids. I think that they did not understand and especially as you read the statement from the the kid who was kind of featured in this moment by his own choice. As you read his statement, you can see that myopia because I don't think they understood that you don't get to stand in front of the Lincoln Memorial in a big group wearing explicitly political clothing and just be a bunch of kids waiting for a bus. Yeah, You don't get to be that. Just like a group of Hispanic teenagers standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial don't just get to be kids waiting for the bus or a group of black teenagers who have on Black Lives Matter apparel. 
You don't get to just be that when you're in a space like this, congregated this way, wearing stuff that announces your position. And in my community, there is going to be a hard time accepting that because we are not very diverse. And I think when you are not in a very diverse space, your instinct in a situation like this is don't judge these boys on the basis of their race. You tell them not to judge other people. And I get that reaction. But here's what I'm learning. I think the first step to not judging other people based on their race is accepting that you have one, too. And having that experience of having assumptions made about you based on your race, especially when you're like wearing a hat that announces some things. And the symbolism of those hats, I think, is a huge part of this entire circumstance. But I think that these kids just didn't realize, young men, right? These young men did not realize the responsibilities attached to standing there congregated in that apparel, waiting for their bus, and what it looked like when their response to stress, and there was stress placed on them, right? Intense stress. Their response to that stress was to kind of amp up their behavior. Mm -hmm. I just keep watching these videos thinking, what would have happened if they had just sat down? Yeah. I go back to my initial response to this, and I waited all day to post anything online because I did want to really think about this and really understand anything else that came out. And I don't think anything excuses the way they behave. All we have in life is how we respond to things, right? That's the only thing we can control. Whatever happened around them, I think they were highly disrespectful to the indigenous people's march and to the indigenous person who was playing music. I think they're highly disrespectful and they're responsible for that. More than that, our community is responsible for not understanding the experiences of other people. And that's work that we need to do in our community. It doesn't make us bad. Like I said, there are wonderful things about being here. It makes us responsible for doing better. And we are responsible here in and of ourselves for doing better. I saw so many posts on Facebook about how Nathan Phillips should come to this high school and speak, or these kids should go spend time on his reservation or whatever. No, everybody, that is not how we do better. We have to start with ourselves. It is not anyone else's responsibility to come into our community and educate us in that way, especially not people who have felt intimidated as a result of where we are. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're totally right. I think that with regards to the the group and the main kid wrote a statement that said he asked the chaperone for permission to chant. I'm going to place a lot of responsibility on whoever that chaperone was. was like, yeah, sure, go ahead and chant, amp it up, start jumping up and down and screaming at people. That will surely diffuse this tense situation with the black Palestinian group, which I have no doubt was yelling you know, offensive things and escalating the situation. I've been around groups just like that in D.C. I totally get the vibe. I understand. But the answer is not to chant in order to disengage from the situation. The only thing I think I'll say is why I absolutely agree that this group, particularly the chaperones, are responsible for their behavior. You know, on this podcast, we've talked about teenage boys before in very different situations. And we've talked about how they are still kids. 
And, you know, maybe this is my bias as the mother of three boys, but if oppression doesn't make a teenage boy an adult, then privilege doesn't either. And they're still not making great decisions at that age. And that's why, to me, the responsibility really falls on the adult. That doesn't mean that they're not responsible for their actions. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't learn from this and suffer some consequences for their incredibly disrespectful behavior. But I still want us to remember that teenage boys are not adults. No matter the situation, no matter the color of their skin, they do not have the brain capacity to assess the consequences of their actions in like real adult ways until you're, I mean, it's like 27, your brain starts working really well. So, I mean, that's the only thing that kind of bugged me is I feel like it immediately became a, they were being treated as adults and they're not. They're, look at those kids. They're kids. And, you know, that's why I don't think it's a great idea to put them in Make America Great Again hats and bring them down there as a big old group to a highly charged environment like the co-marching of indigenous people and pro-life groups. Like, who thought this was a great idea? Like, this is not a great idea. Like, they showed up in that gear knowing that it sent a message and it wasn't respect for all life. So, you know, I think that that's the adults in the situation really hold a lot of responsibility for taking groups of teenage boys, prepping them for the environment they're going to be in, helping them diffuse situation, teaching them those skills. And I think that's really the missed opportunity here. And I think it's important to say, because I know people will feel this reaction, we are wrong when we treat yep. teenage boys who are Black and are running from mm-hmm. the police as adults. We are we are wrong in many, many contexts when we treat kids as adults, no matter what the circumstances are. I think I want to bring that up just so we don't get lost in sort of, but this, because mm-hmm. that's, you're right. Absolutely right. In any situation, too, we have got to stop the death threats. Here's this person's address. Like, come on, you guys. I hate that these kids' names are floating around the the media. I really do. I understand that a lot of people are going to react to that by saying, really, because he could afford to immediately hire a lawyer to issue a statement. Okay, fine. You know, be mad about that. My feeling is... If we turn this moment into social media justice mob, Mm -hmm. we are going to take a group of people and create folks who respond to these situations in the way that Brett Kavanaugh responded to the accusations against him, which is everybody is out to get me. Yeah. Everybody is lying. I bear no responsibility here whatsoever. Instead, this could be a moment where we say, how unfortunate, what can we learn from this, and create people who understand themselves in the world a little bit differently. And I think that's what we ought to be doing. In the same way that if they'd said, hey, everybody sit down, it would have de-escalated the situation. There's no, there's no situation in which, or no reality in which saying, oh, let's share the names and addresses of these kids doesn't do anything but escalate the situation online. That's right. So... That's all that's doing is just fueling the fire. And there is it is both true that people have a right to be angry at the disrespect that that group showed Nathan Phillips and that to place the anger on their actions instead of using the anger to fuel some sort of Internet outrage is not helpful. Like both things can be true. You can be angry and realize that a wrong was done here and understand that more anger and outrage is not going to solve the situation, fix the situation, or even 
advance the conversation in any meaningful way. I think that's right. The whole bulleted list of things about this interaction are true. It is true that the initial videos were shown without context that I think is important. It is also true that that context does not absolve these kids of responsibility for what they did. And it was still disrespectful. It is also true that I think they didn't understand the impact that their actions would have when they started the dancing, chanting, cheering, jumping around. And that the adults with them might not have either. And everyone Mm -hmm. is still responsible for all of that. And we just got to be able to, like, hang with that messiness because there is a lot to be learned here if we'll do that. Hold that tension. Well, speaking of holding the tension, the government shutdown continues. It's day 32, which is, I just think, a disgrace. What a disgrace. A month of this? Yeah, they're coming up on their second paycheck. The federal workers are about to miss their second paycheck. I don't really know what my family would do if we missed two paychecks. Like, we have savings to get us through stuff like that, but it would be being rapidly depleted at this point. Well, and when you have no idea when it's going to end. I was reading an article from Business Insider that we'll put in the show notes about how nutrition in schools is funded through the end of March. but. Nothing right now gives anyone comfort that this is going to be resolved by the end of March. And so school programs are starting to think, well, do we do less juice? You know, how do we how do we make provisions so that if we have to get through the end of the school year, we're able to do that? That is a very sad situation. Trump offered this weekend a temporarily extended protections for DACA recipients for about three years if he could have his five point seven billion dollars for the border wall. Not surprisingly, that proposal did not go over well with Democrats. I really liked Elijah Cummings' quote. He basically said, look, why would we give a permanent wall in exchange for temporary protections, which I thought was a nice way to phrase it. Doesn't go far enough. And also the Democrats at this point are refusing to even discuss funding and or discuss immigration until the government is back open. To me, the, the narrative about his proposal was we're just trying to shift the responsibility to them. We don't actually think this they'll like this, but... The the narrative coming from his administration and from sort of analysis was this is just a a try to shift the the responsibility to Democrats because we know at this point that it's that we're owning all this and people are blaming us and we really just want to offload the blame. I read some articles this morning that to cut to the chase said what you just said, that Republicans wanted him to just put something on the table so that there was something to start working with, which seems so silly to me because – There is something to start working with. The Senate passed something before the holiday break, right, that you would think could be a good starting place. But I don't think anybody has any ideas about how to break this logjam. And it's just embarrassing. It's becoming frustrating, tragic, embarrassing, all of them. I'm just back to like, why are we even here? What are we doing as the United States of America if we can't even get our government to function? If we're not even doing the most basic functions of government, we need to really have a sit down and talk about what the point of all of this is. Especially when this amount of money is a large amount of money and it's also not in the grand scheme. This money can't do much on a border wall, right? Like if you if you actually want what Trump says he wants, five point seven billion dollars doesn't get him even close to that. I saw a senator, I think it was Chris Murphy, tweet over the weekend something like, you know, imagine somebody wrecks your house and then says, I'll fix it if you give me $5.7 billion. What would you say? 
And Brian Schatz from Hawaii, the senator from Hawaii, responded and said, I'd say, hey, man, that sounds like a lot of money. How about three? And I really kind of appreciated that interaction and that the senator was making the point of like, yes, this is terrible. It is Trump's fault. Also, like, how can we just get some movement here? You know, it's just tough in a negotiation like this where someone has said, I own this. It's on me and I'm not going to budge. It just doesn't give the other person any room to budge either. I read this weekend that Trump invited Schumer to the White House and he said, not basically not without Nancy. Like there's just no daylight between the Democrats, which is it's a new thing we're trying out. I'm kind of enjoying it. But I think that, you know, they know and I think he knows that they are in a stronger bargaining position. And he's tried all his classic techniques of let me create chaos, let me create like exactly that, let me create damage and then come in and offer to take it away. And they're just not biting. And so there's a part of me that is is particularly as a Democrat that's like, on one hand, I do not believe that Donald Trump will ever not be Donald Trump. On the other hand, at no point in his presidency or candidacy did anybody call his dang bluff. And I am ready for his bluff to be called because I feel like if we continue letting him use the same tactics, create chaos, hold us all hostage, it's only going to escalate and get worse. And so there is a part of me that's like, yeah, call his bluff finally, please. It's just at the expense of so many people. And that is unfortunate. I did read that Mitch McConnell is starting his sort of behind the scenes machinations. I think he understands. And I am like wholly speculating here. I think he understands at some level. There is a remarkable opportunity for Republicans to get a lot of immigration reform that most of them think is a good idea, but are scared to do because of the base of the Republican Party. They could get it done here in the name of getting our Coast Guard paid, in the name of getting the government reopened. They could make compromises that they have been afraid to make in other contexts and get this thing done and all of us be better for it. This doesn't have to have happened in vain. Now, this Mm -hmm. is a stupid way to get us there. But here we are in stupid land. So can we make the best of it? And I wish that they would just get to work on that. You could have pretty good immigration reform done here as a compromise and a way for some of those Republicans who wouldn't cast these votes otherwise to save face with the base. We always compliment the other side before we move on to our main segment. Sarah, who do you want to compliment today? Okay, I'm going to go back in time a little bit, and I am going to compliment President Ronald Reagan, who signed the law that created the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday into law in 1983, as we are recording on Martin Luther King Day. And so I I know the history is complicated and it was a reluctant signing, but it was a signing just the same. And so I would like to recognize that Ronald Reagan did create this holiday in which we get to celebrate and contemplate and memorialize somebody who is so important to our American history and to civil rights in the United States. I wanted to compliment Representative Tony Cardenas of California. He accepted an apology from Representative Jason Smith of Missouri after Smith yelled, go back to Puerto Rico during a squabble on the floor of the house. The house was like erupting basically over this. Got a little little intense in there, man. Kind of felt like we were in the UK for a second over roll call vote versus a voice vote on one of the funding bills. And 
Republicans say that Representative Smith shouted go back to Puerto Rico against all Democrats as a way of criticizing their trip to Puerto Rico during the shutdown, which has been like a favorite conservative radio TV talking point for a while. It felt in the room to many that it was a personal and racist slur against Representative Cardenas, who was waiting to speak. Representative Smith called and apologized, and Representative Cardenas accepted the apology and said, There is a saying that I was taught by my parents, de todo lo malo siempre sale algo bueno, which I sincerely hope I got somewhere in the realm of correct, which in English means from everything bad, something good will come of it. I look forward to working with and getting to know Congressman Smith in the months ahead. And I thought, Man, if everybody would just adopt that kind of mindset, we could get somewhere. I think that's a great description of what we were trying to say about everything we just discussed. From something bad, good things can come of it. Absolutely. Next up, we're going to discuss the power of House committees and what the next few months might look like. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space. 
to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash pantsuit. So last Friday, we went through the five important things you need to know about House committees. And we really focused on the House committees with the most power, the power to either raise taxes or deal with, oh, I don't know, like 75% of the cabinet departments. And so we're going to work our way through these committees and talk about who's in charge now and what that could mean for the future. I'll tell you, Beth, what I was really surprised by is someone who thinks they know a lot about the major players in D.C. and who did understand which committees were powerful. I do not even recognize the names of the two most powerful committees. So that tells you something about media coverage and actual power within Congress. I think that's right. So we'll start with Ways and Means. As we discussed, Ways and Means has a huge power of the purse, right? So committee power concentrated a lot in how much money they control and also how much money is given to members of those committees because of the money that they control. So Richard Mm. Neal is the chair of the Ways and Means Committee. The main stories about Richard Neal so far are about his power potentially as chair of the Ways and Means Committee to get Donald Trump's tax returns. There is a very obscure law that allows the Ways and Means Committee to review any of our tax returns in a closed session. It has been almost never used. And not sure if that law would work or not. There would probably be a big legal battle if they tried to get Trump's tax returns under it. So Richard Neal's approach is to make the case that there should be a law requiring all presidents to disclose their tax returns. What has been a practice should become a law. And so that's a slower play than a lot of people on the left want from him. I think it's really wise, and I commend him for taking that approach. So just so you know, Richard Neal is from Massachusetts' first congressional district. He assumed office in 1989. Takes a while to get to the top of the Ways and Means Committee. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's been there a while. I was eight. It's cool. So I would say that this is a very experienced congressperson. So think about if the position of Ways and Means, which I'm not sure how long he's been on this committee, but I would assume it's a long time. I mean, he's built up a lot of political power and probably a lot of fundraising prowess. So I think this will be very interesting to watch. And I think you're right. I think that saying that all presidents should be, first of all, I just agree. I think they should all disclose their tax returns is is a smart play. Next up is Energy and Commerce. Energy and Commerce is chaired by Representative Frank Pallone now. He is very focused on climate change. He is a little more moderate, too, than some voices in the party would like him to be. So he has said that he's willing to have this committee take up the Green New Deal proposal. He also has expressed skepticism about whether parts of it will work or are realistic. And he has said, like, I don't want to deal in concepts. I want to actually get things done. 
His very first hearing is going to be on climate change. He's gotten a little bit of press over the past couple of weeks because there's been this call for every member of this committee to reject funding from fossil fuel companies. And he has said that goes too far because where do you draw the line? Which is, you know, not making everyone happy, but that's where he is. And I think there's a trend here, right? People who've been there a very Mm -hmm. long time are the way they are for reasons. So Pallone is from New Jersey. But his district has changed since his time in office. He is another longtime representative, came in 1988. And so first he served in New Jersey's 3rd District, and then it got redrawn. And now he is the representative from New Jersey's 6th District. And he's had challenges. He's had primary challenges. He has, I mean, he's a moderate because it's not a hardcore left-leaning district in New Jersey. I think that that's where you see that moderation come. But again, another long serve, long-term congressman who knows the ropes and who's more moderate, based a lot on his district in the sort of constituency he serves in New Jersey. Maxine Waters chairs less less moderate less, less moderate, moderate. Gonna, <laughs> out there uh, chairs now the House Financial Services Committee which broadly oversees big banks and the finance industry. I thought it might be helpful to read a little bit directly from her letter after she was appointed. She said, I will prioritize protecting consumers and investors from abusive financial practices, making sure that there are strong safeguards in place to prevent another financial crisis, expanding and supporting affordable housing opportunities, tackling the homelessness crisis, encouraging responsible innovation in financial technology, promoting diversity and inclusion in the financial services sector, working to strengthen our house finance system, and ensuring that hardworking Americans and small businesses have fair access to the financial system and opportunities to thrive. And that is a list that sounds awesome and probably has a lot of people shaking in their boots because the details of that are long and thorny. Maxine Waters is the representative from California's 43rd District. She has been in Congress since 1991. And she's often elected with like 70% of the vote. So there is not as much reason to be a moderate, but she is the most senior of all the African-American women in Congress. She's another long-term Congresswoman, but very different political makeup of her district than somebody like Richard Neal or Frank Pallone. Like I said, I mean, she doesn't have a lot of motivation to be moderate, but I think that she is a much stronger bipartisan player than people give her credit for. I read a really interesting article about her several months ago that was like, she has a stronger history of working across the aisle than people, than her sort of media portrayal would lead you to believe. Another interesting thing about the House Financial Services Committee is that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been named as a member. So, I mean, I'm all in on these hearings. I'll be watching. I'm just going to be, based on those two being there alone, I'll be watching. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely more of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party when it comes to consumer protections and the income inequality. So I'm, I'm excited about these two. I'm excited about Maxine Waters being at the head of the House Financial Services Committee. I can't wait to see what she does. And to be inclusive here, Ocasio-Cortez is not the only kind of freshman star on this committee. Rashida Tlaib is on it. Ayanna mm-hmm. Presley. This committee is stacked up to do a lot. It also is stacked up to do some things that will otherwise personally affect the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. So also included in 
uh, Representative Waters' letter was this paragraph. I'm committed to strong oversight and following the Trump money trail, starting with Deutsche Bank and suspicious activities reports filed with the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN. To date, I have joined with my subcommittee ranking members to write numerous letters to our regulators, Chairman Henserling and Deutsche Bank on this matter. So... Representative Waters will not let Trump go quietly into the night in her committee either. I have to mention, too, hilariously, to your point about her not being so moderate, this letter has a section called Working Across the Aisle, and the next section header is Fighting Back Against Republican Extremism. (laughs) (laughs) Nuanced. Maxine Waters is nuanced. (laughs) Yep, Yep, that's what it is. That's what it is. I'm going with nuanced. So then we should talk about committees that are going to be more focused on investigation. So those were really kind of legislatively focused committees. Now we're going to get into the investigative committees. And we didn't make this point on Friday, but I want to be sure everybody knows House committees cannot bring criminal charges against people, but they can refer matters to the Justice Department. And in the course of doing that, they can subpoena documents and witnesses and hold hearings and just generally make life really hard. And I think that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I agree. Okay. So first up, we have the Intelligence Committee, which has been staffing up, hiring lots of money laundering and forensic accounting experts because there's basically a theory that Trump laundered Russian money when they couldn't get legitimate financing. We didn't even get into the new reporting that they're basically admitting they were trying to get a Trump Tower in Moscow all the way through the campaign. So I don't think the staffing is ill-advised. I think it's very well-advised. The head of the Intelligence Committee is Adam Schiff, who is the representative for California's 28th congressional district since 2013. So he's a newer member, I would say. If you're wondering what Trump laundering Russian money has to do with the House Intelligence Committee, and I think there are people who probably are, the Intelligence Committee's concern here would be what potentially compromising material is out there about Trump. In what Mm -hmm. ways could foreign governments be blackmailing the president, influencing the president's foreign policy because of intelligence that they have about him? And so that's the link to Schiff's committee. They also have questions about his family's financial ties to Saudi Arabia and North Korea for the same reason. We've had really unusual statements, trips, discussions from the Trump administration about these two countries that is very different from past presidents and where kind of the consensus positions are in Washington, D.C. And so the Intelligence Committee wants to make sure, in the best reading of this, the Intelligence Committee wants to make sure that that's all on the up and up, that there isn't a reason that we don't know about for those things to be happening. And I just want to say as a Republican, I don't like endless investigations. I think the Republican Party was completely wasteful of taxpayer dollars in many longstanding investigations that they've insisted upon. I do think there is a role for this kind of activity. And I think that Republicans started down the path of the right role and just let it get out of control in a lot of their investigations. So I'm not opposed to anything that Adam Schiff is describing. I think it's necessary oversight, especially because he is taking the gavel of this committee from Devin Nunes, who I have massive questions about. So I I think he has a lot of work in front of him, and I think it's work that should be done. So next up, we have the Oversight Committee, which is chaired by Elijah Cummings, who is a congressperson from Maryland, also a long-term congressperson. He was first elected in 1996. He's also seen as one of the 
big party leaders as far as the the hierarchy falling under Nancy Pelosi. It's really interesting. Over the past few years in the minority, his staff has filed like 50 subpoena requests for Trump for the Trump administration. But because they were not the majority, they were sort of powerless to issue the subpoenas. They just were filing them. They were investigating the administrator's response to Hurricane Maria, locating migrant children separated from their families, investigating the ethical issues with the Scott Pruitt and all his adventures. I'm going to be nice call them adventures over at the EPA. So now that he is the chairman of the majority, he can issue those subpoenas. And so I think this committee is rapidly going to be sucking up a lot of the oxygen in the room. I think that's right. And closely related is the Judiciary Committee, which is chaired by Jerry Nadler. This committee has oversight of immigration policy. And just as a side note, Senator Jeff Merkley has asked the FBI to investigate Secretary Nielsen for perjury. And I imagine that what happens on the Senate side is going to influence the direction of the House side. Judiciary would have oversight if impeachment proceedings opened. Jerry Nadler could reopen an investigation into the sexual assault allegations against Brett Kavanaugh. So, He has very broad power and seems a bit circumspect so far about how he's going to use it. But Nadler, Schiff, and Cummings, so the three committees that we just talked about, have already sent the president a letter warning him against interfering with Michael Cohen as a witness after the president was on television blasting Cohen. And I think this letter really highlights what these committees are here to do. So Jerry Nadler is a representative from New York. His district does include part of New York City. And so him and Donald Trump have a long, not awesome history together, which was reported on a lot when it looked like the Democrats were going to take the majority. And so I I personally, just having a little bit longer knowledge of Jerry Nedler, I had a friend who worked for him for a long time. Like, this is the one I'll be watching, just, just to put that out there. I think he's being, like you said, I think he's being circumspect. I don't think he's coming out the gates roaring. I think that's a smart move. But I think he's got plans. I'll be honest, I think Jerry Nadler's got lots and lots of plans. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. 
That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. The last committee that we wanted to talk about today is the House Foreign Affairs Committee, chaired by Elliot Engel, who is not a fan of Secretary Pompeo. <laughs> he has been a vocal critic of Secretary Pompeo's tendency to travel the globe bashing political opponents, mm. especially his most recent time in Egypt. He is interested in the president's ties to Panama and Russia. Again, foreign affairs. Why are we doing what we're doing? Are we doing it for good reasons or are we doing it for reasons that are personal to the president? He is creating a subcommittee focused entirely on investigating President Trump. And to create that subcommittee, he is eliminating a subcommittee focused on terrorism. You can imagine how the conservative world has reacted to that switch. But this is a committee that I think is going to be a real thorn in the president's side as well. I mean, I think that's the theme. The theme is many of these committees are. And look, I don't think it's about being a thorn in the side either. I think it's just finally being a check. We need people asking questions. I can't believe sort of when you look back over, we've hit the officially hit the two-year mark of the Trump administration. And just a few of the short things we've listed, separating children from their parents at the border, the corruption at the EPA, the problems with his ties to Russia and his failure to release his tax returns. Like there's just, there's so much here that I honestly have questions about and I hope somebody asks. And I hope that part of the reason we have avoided missteps in previous administrations is because good oversight was being done quietly behind the scenes. You know, mm-hmm. the the Republican Congress, I think under President Obama, decided that this oversight was a place to make names for people. And I imagine that that trend is going to continue. But we do need oversight. Like, there should be tension. They should be a thorn in the side. Like we talked about on our last episode, things should be really difficult to get done in the federal government because the federal government has immense power. And if it were easy to just do things, 
that power could so easily be abused. And I think it has been abused over the past couple of years. So all the best house committees. It's a tough environment (laughs) because how do you do this work when you have a government shutdown? And that's part of the reason that I think the administration doesn't have a lot of incentive to move forward here. Yeah, I agree. It's tough when the Mueller investigation is hanging out there. And we keep hearing the report from the Mueller team will be released in February, but I don't know exactly when. Maybe somebody on the Hill does. February is not far and it's not a long month. So just saying. If I were chairing one of these committees, though, I would have a lot of questions about what to prioritize and the timing to tackle things in, because some of these questions might get resolved by the Mueller report. So I think they're in tough spots. I agree. I hope this has been a helpful overview of the committees themselves, who's coming into power and the realities they're facing. As with everything in our current political environment, the ground underneath these House committees will be shifting rapidly and we'll be here to walk you through all that. Next up, we're going to share what's on our mind outside politics. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? I watched both documentaries about the Fire Festival. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do not. Okay. Do you remember the Fire Festival? It was the music festival, and it was, like, going to be a big deal, and it was going to be on an island, and then everybody got there, and it was a complete shit show, and people were, like, hungry and being locked in airports, and it was just a total, total disaster. Do you remember this controversy? Not really. <laughs> okay. This says a lot about your social media following. Positively. It says a lot of positive things about your social media following. Well, it was a big deal. It was Jaw Rule and this kid named Billy McFarlane, and they had this viral video went out of all these models romping on a remote island in the Bahamas and they were going to have this amazing music festival and then it all fell apart because this Billy McFarland dude was definitely committing fraud on his investors, his employees and ticket goers the whole entire time. So there are two documentaries. There was Netflix was putting one out and then like two days before Hulu came out was like, hey, we have one too and like kind of beat him to the punch. I watched both of them. I'm just trying to do the due diligence for all you people. You're welcome. It was totally fascinating. It's definitely more the Hulu one than the Netflix one because the Netflix one interviews the social media company that did the promotion for the festival and holds them much less responsible than the Hulu one. But I think the Hulu one goes a little too far in sort of indicting the millennial generation as, you know, they're just, it's all about FOMO. And so they're ripe to be exploited and they don't ask hard questions. It was a little heavy handed for me. They interview Billy McFarlane in the Hulu one, but I use the word interview very lightly because he basically doesn't answer any hard questions. He's currently in federal prison. I thought the Netflix one, both of them were really interesting, but the Netflix had a little bit more hard detail and better storytelling about, although I I do think that the team at Jerry, the social media company, holds more responsibility than was sort of put upon them in the Netflix documentary. It just is really interesting. You know, any sort of train wreck like this presents so many interesting questions about people's responsibility, about how this sort of social media capital is so ripe for exploitation. You know, I don't necessarily think Bell Hadid and all these supermodels hold responsibility for everything They, you know, I don't think they should go to federal prison for the fire festival, but I do think, you know, as someone who does personally promote products that I am paid to try out on this podcast, like I do take that seriously. And I do think there is some responsibility to Kendall Jenner and all these people who shared this festival when they knew pay got paid $250,000 a pop is the reporting on Kendall Jenner to just post one thing. Like, you know, you should know what's going on. Like there is some responsibility to understand what you're promoting like, they were basically promoting a fire a festival that had no infrastructure four months out. You need, like, two years to build this sort of event. And anybody with any sort of knowledge or 
did the the most minor amount of digging would have realized what a shit show this was going to be. So I think there is bigger responsibility just on Billy McFarlane, who is absolutely a compulsive liar and a fraudster. But, you know, they need fraudsters aren't like that. They need some sort of fertile ground on which to build their fraud. And I do think there is responsibility with the social media marketers and the influencers themselves for providing that fertile ground. So I thought it was fascinating. Totally recommend it. If you're only going to watch one, I think you should watch the Netflix one. That's my final call. I had no idea that you were going to talk about this, obviously, from my flat-footed response to your questions. (laughs) It reminds me, though, of this article that I read in The Atlantic in December that was fascinating about influencers faking sponsorships on Instagram. Did you read that? Yes, I did. It was so interesting. I feel like we're just living in a world that I hardly understand, and I have a podcast. I mean, I was reading this article, and I was thinking, like, it never in a million years would have occurred to me that people are deliberately trying to look like their posts are sponsored. Because I feel like I'm still stuck in the headspace of, how do I make this as natural as possible, right? Mm -hmm. And how do I not... How do I make it really authentic to me instead of looking like, here's a paid thing, And that's why you and I take that responsibility seriously. Like, we don't like to work with companies that we can't really embrace down to our toes and say something personal about. And so when I read this article about how people are trying to build their Instagram followings by pretending to be advertising for companies and using words that sound like ad copy, I was blown away. Well, I think it just speaks to the difference in the platforms. Like, yeah, of course I like podcasting better, but we have Instagram accounts. We take our Instagram account seriously. It's a different thing. I don't think it's a really that big of a jump between faking advertisers on an Instagram account because Instagram, spoiler alert, is a, there's a lot of fake on Instagram, man. You're just giving a teeny tiny millisecond snapshot. Like you're you're crafting the tablescape on which you lay out your books. You're like doing all these things to make it pretty. Whereas in podcasting, you know, the currency is sort of the raw authenticity of talking to people's ears. It's like a totally, totally different thing. And so to me, the the platforms, the difference in the platforms, it's not surprising that you're going to see more sort of fraud and faking on Instagram than in a podcast. I mean, you can't fake a conversation necessarily. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a, it's a different, it's a totally different platform. Yeah. I'm just blown away. I'm blown away by the whole Instagram culture. We have really interesting interactions with listeners there, which is why we are primarily on Instagram when we spend our social media time now. But man, as I scroll my feed, I just get so irritated with the whole thing because it does feel so staged. I feel like Instagram is designed to make me feel bad about myself sometimes. And now that I know that people are like advertising, but not really, it just makes me even matter. So what's on your mind outside politics? Cooking. I made Julia Child's beef bourguignon a while back during the snow. And I've been thinking about that experience a lot because it was the first time in a long time that I've really kind of tended to something all day like that. And I realized that what made it so special to cook and I think what makes it so special to eat and the reason that it's been a classic for ever is that every single component of it gets touched multiple times. There is nothing that you just like put in a pot and cook. You sear every individual piece of meat. The pearl onions get like 40 minutes on the stove with this little herb bouquet. And you just kind of keep coming back to things and taking care of each ingredient so that when they all come together after a long time in the oven, there's something so beautiful about it. 
And I've just been reflecting on that a lot, both in my cooking and sort of my life. Like, how many things do we engage with where we really engage with like every single part of them at that level? I'm going to be a little flat-footed here because I don't cook, but it all sounds delicious. And I totally understand what you're saying as far as just engaging with the process. I think that's why people like cooking. That's what my husband always says. I mean, the husband's, my husband's a cook in our family. And he says that basically like, you know, he's a lawyer, so he doesn't really get the definitely like the sensory engagement and the finality of like, I did this amount of labor and this is the product. I mean, like, listen, that's not unrelated to Instagram and social media, which feels like it's an ongoing labor process. And so when you have something where you're like, this is the steps, I have this beautiful sensory experience and we're done. Not that you don't continue to eat, but you know what I mean? Like every meal is a completion in and of itself. I get it. Yeah. And it's just such a treat to me to be able to do that with something that is a long process because I feel like most of cooking now is here's something wonderful you can make in less than an hour. Right. And to just know I'm going to spend my whole day on this thing. It was just lovely. I need to do more of that. So I started a note. You'll appreciate this part because this is way more you than me. I started a note in the back of my planner that is like cooking accomplishments this year. And I'm just going to write down the things that I've made so that at the end of the year, I can look back and see what all I did. You got to do that. Like you got to document, man. I'm telling you, the tracking is very beneficial. My The way I'm tracking this year differently than I have in the past, instead of, I didn't do like a little page in my bullet journal for all the books I've read. Instead, I'm trying to make sure and write, actually write out a review in Goodreads for every book I've read. I feel like that's sort of enhancing the experience instead of, and having some, like you said, sort of some sort of like, I finished this. This is what I accomplished. Let me think through the the process of finishing it before I just n- immediately move on to the next thing. There's some beauty in that. I think it's important. It's like a commemoration of sorts, yep. which if you are into, you should check out The Nuance Life where we will be tomorrow and then we'll be back here on Friday. On Friday, we have a very special guest joining us. Sarah, would you like to share with people who it is? This is my internet crush since ever, since she told me about Downton Abbey, if that gives you a concept of how long I've been following. Anne Helen Peterson, she writes for BuzzFeed. She is a celebrity gossip academic, which I didn't know was a thing. If I had known that was a thing, I wouldn't be here podcasting. That's what I would have done with my life. I cannot wait to talk with her. I am so stinking excited. So definitely join us on Friday to hear from Anne Helen Peterson. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. And thanks for making us sound better and smarter, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our production assistant, which means we could not live without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you so much, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help make the show better. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Learn more about our live events that we're involved in and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with us and members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.